Welcome to Rehydrate. This is a podcast about the book series and soon to be TV series, Remembrance of Earth's Past. Uh, the first book in that series is the famous Three Body Problem. And on this, the four hosts have different levels of experience with it. And we're going to talk about it from our various perspectives. I'm Jim. I've only read the Three Body Problem, the book. And I've not read the other two books. I have read a lot of science fiction over the years, although I'm not a super diehard science fiction reader. I like a lot of Philip K. Dick, some Ray Bradbury. You know, I want to say something like Michael Crichton, even though that will destroy my credibility, but I did read a lot of that stuff. Yeah. All right. And then on to Dan. Hi, I'm Dan. So I've read the entire trilogy multiple times, actually. Uh, and I'm not a huge reader. Uh, in other aspects, I've read the Game of Thrones series. I read some Stephen King and Michael Crichton in high school, but it's been a while. Oh, hey, I'm Tim. Um, I, uh, I've not read the series. I'm just, I'm a newbie to the series. Uh, I've only read the first couple chapters. So that's the perspective I'm coming from. As far as my reading history, I uh, mostly grew up reading a lot of fantasy. I've never been really big into hard sci-fi other than your usual like Star Wars or, you know, science fantasy stuff but in recent years i've read a bit more uh, including like if you've read uh, alistair reynolds revelation space series i like that a lot so um and uh as well as some kind of like or cyberpunk or william gibson type stuff so yeah that's about my history with uh sci-fi and uh definitely getting more into hard sci-fi in my later years Hey, this is Amin, and like Tim, I am reading this series for the first time as we are talking about each set of chapters. I have not read sci-fi seriously for over 15 years, probably, so this is kind of a reintroduction to sci-fi for me. All right. And now, uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about the first book, and uh, we're going to talk about the, the first two chapters and Dan is going to tell us basically what happened. You know, this is like, um, you know, the kind of thing where I, I guess you will you'll get spoiled. It gets spoiled on the first two chapters, so uh, don't listen if you don't want that. But I, I think it should be okay, even if you've never read this and are interested in reading it. All right. Yeah, we, we should talk about it. the structure of the show too. So structure-wise, yeah. for the show, what we intend is every episode we're going to cover about one to two chapters of the book. So it's kind of easily digestible chunks for you know, people to listen along with. And then by by the end of the series, uh, after how many chapters that is for all three books, hopefully the, the TV show that just got announced a couple weeks ago um, will be closer to being on air. And then we'll discuss those uh, as they go along. But the intention is for every show to kind of follow along as if it was a TV show, assuming the TV show is about one to two chapters of content a, a week. Um, yeah, so in this uh, episode, we're going to talk about chapters one and two of The Three-Body Problem. So in chapter one, we're introduced to uh, Ye Wenjie, who is who witnesses her father, Ye Jitai, getting murdered by a mob persecuting him for being a reactionary during the early stages of China's Cultural Revolution in 1967. Um, they try to make him say that the theory of relativity was an American capitalist idea, but he wouldn't, even despite his wife, Shaolin, uh, also a physics professor, uh, trying to force him to do so in front of a gathered mob. Uh, they considered the Big Bang Theory that Yejitai taught to be a reactionary uh, theory, since prior to the Big Bang, there was nothing, 
And it leaves open to the idea there's a God. And yeah, I would def not definitively say that there was no God, just that he didn't know. Um, and there's been no evidence uh, either way, according to science. In chapter two, uh, three years later, uh, Ye Wenjie is at the production and construction. Oh, good pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. No. Uh, in chapter two, uh, three years later, uh, Ye Wenjie is at the production and construction corps, uh, a labor camp in Inner Mongolia, responsible for cutting trees and dealing with forests in an area surrounding the mysterious radar peak, where people notice strange phenomena around the appearance of an antenna that seem to make ice melt and turn the snow into rain. Um, there are also soldiers who have authorization to shoot anyone who approaches the peak. Uh, at the camp, uh, Ye Wenjie meets Bai Mulin, uh, a reporter who introduces her to a book called Silent Spring. Uh, it's an American book that talks about the death of a small town uh, from pesticides. Bai wants her to write a letter to the government in Beijing saying the work they're doing with uh, the forests of Inner Mongolia are harmful and should be stopped. He eventually asks Ye Wenjie to copy the letter that he had written to make it more legible, and Ye agrees. Later, Ye Wenjie is arrested in charge of being a reactionary when Bai Mulin says that she was actually the one who wrote the letter in order to save himself from the charges. Later, Ye Wenjie is given the opportunity of leniency by signing a document supposed to be written by her sister saying that she had overheard the conversations from her father about a defense project that he was supposed to have been working on. But when Ye refuses to sign, saying she was not aware of the conversations, she is forced to remain in isolation in a cell in the freezing Inner Mongolian winter. Unless you are really tuned into what's going on in China, Dan, Dan may be more than the rest of us because he knows people who have lived in China and still live in China. But I thought this is interesting in that this is like a really open acknowledgement that the Cultural Revolution was bad. Uh, and for like a really long time ago, a long, long time, they weren't allowed to say that. That and it, should, it, was, it should be noted if, like, in case bad. you don't know, <laughs> yeah, in case like the people don't know, like the author uh, Liu Cixin is actually like Chinese and wrote this in China originally in Chinese and was translated to English. So, like Jim is saying, it's not only like an interesting perspective that you normally wouldn't hear, but it's someone who has come from growing up in China and kind of recognizing the fact that like some of this, the reactions that happened to the cultural revolution, you know, caused like this great harm. No, I think that's the most interesting part for me, at least because since we so know so little about the actual plot or the sci-fi, you know, at this point is just kind of like a lot of points being made about the, obviously about the cultural revolution. I think what I found kind of interesting in, in the first chapter was uh, at first I was a little confused because I wasn't sure, you know, I, I wasn't sure what these actual like rebel groups like actually represented in here because you I mean I know you know like the basic outline of the cultural revolution and all that, but the fact that they were kind of depicting like these sort of sub factions within it because at first I was wondering like why are they shooting at this you know young you know young girl at the top of the I guess I I, I didn't quite grasp what was uh at first you know until I kind of like read up on their red garden and you know the factions within like what exactly was going on there um, because, you know, they kind of all seem to be on the same side, but I really you yeah. know, didn't realize that this like student faction was like, basically we're more, we're more Maoist than you even like violence erupted between factions, even within the, the red guard. Yeah. I think it's like I, most revolutions, I think have like this kind of thing that, you know, usually gets sort of swept under the rug where there's a chance for everybody to, uh, seize power. And like, this is no exception here. The weird thing about, so I, I read about the cultural revolution before in, you know, classy 
you know, highly literary style by reading a comic book called The Chinese Life, <laughs> where it was about like this guy's biography about, you know, he's like, at the time he wrote it 10 years ago, he's like an 80 year old man. So he lived through all this. Everything was up for grabs. And like, just like in this chapter, right, there were like mobs of 14 year old kids who just rounded up their teachers from school. And then, you know, were able to just come up with all sorts of reasons they were anti-revolutionary and then would just like, in the thing I read, they didn't actually kill them, uh, but I don't doubt that that really happened uh, much like here. Yeah, they, they killed this professor in case you missed it in, in this chapter. The, I'm talking to the listener, I guess, here. I think the other thing that was interesting to me about this contextually is I think the book was published in 2008, which was when... I believe is also when the Beijing Olympics happened. So I feel like in the years leading up to that, China was very much changing how they are seen globally. So to me, it was interesting that such a divergent perspective was being reintroduced in popular media when the Chinese were doing doing the opposite to prepare for the Olympics. Um, it seems like this book, you know, or at least this series and this author, you know, has kind of been like the flagship for science opening up, I think that's generated a lot of interest in Chinese sci-fi and all that. And I guess I'm not uh, clear on like the timeline as to like, would this, would this book, you know, something that is critical of the cultural revolution, you know, even be allowed to be exported back in like even 10 years prior? Yeah. How much can they, do do you happen to know what, what can you, what are you allowed to say? Are you allowed to say Mao is bad? Like he, like he, obviously you are because he didn't like say it outright, but. He basically said Mao was bad in this first chapter. To clarify, the the um, author is like, I mean, he's a Chinese city. He's currently residing in China, is he not? Or He, he is. is. And he's and a, he's a, a Chinese yeah. nationalist. He's, he's uh, yeah. well, we could talk about that later, but he, he's yeah. he's not like, oh, I'm, I'm critical of China and I hate China. Uh, yeah. he's, he's like, I, yeah, I know China's he has doing his own great stuff. Issues. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I, I found kind of jarring when I first read the book is like, you know, I picked up this book because I heard it was, you know, hardcore science fiction. And I just wanted, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to read something like that. But then I read these first two chapters and I was like, what is the science? <laughs> where is the science fiction? Like, is that your guys' experience as well? Like, did you uh, did you expect this kind of opening? I, I did because, well, I mean, I didn't expect, obviously, this exact opening. But like, you know, hard science fiction often does have like some kind of political connection. It's not about pure science. You know, things like Ted Chiang, uh, you know, an American sci-fi author often has political stuff going on, you know, usually making a statement about something like weird stuff going on with AI, like Philip K. Dick, right, is is generally acknowledged as, you know, even though he doesn't get into like super detailed stuff, it's usually thought of as fairly hard sci-fi. You know, it's usually the center concept of, of most of his stories. But yeah, he did things like Man in the High Castle, right, which is about like what would happen if Axis one, World War Two, things like that. So, uh, I mean, and it, again, it's a legitimate response to be surprised, I think. But I, yeah. I wasn't surprised. Well, yeah, I knew that this had some background in the, uh, had some historical background, and um, the first two chapters remind me a little bit of like, um, if you ever read like some of Neil Stevenson's stuff, you know, like his Baroque Cycle, uh, like, and or Cryptonomicon, which is kind of like sci-fi, but it's sort of like historical sci-fi. You know, so yeah. it reminds me a little bit of like Cryptonomicon, if you've ever read that book. Yeah, I will say, though, that that Lu Xixin knows how to end a book. <laughs> oh, unlike Neil Stevenson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. In case yeah he's very entertaining. He's... Yeah, he's... 
He's very entertaining <laughs> along the way, but yeah, it's a little meandering, but. Yeah. And I, I think, I think Lucy Shin should give himself more credit. Like, you know, in um, there's like a New Yorker interview where he talked about like, I don't really care about characters. I just, um, just kind of interested in the concepts and stuff like that, but. That's oh, very yeah, Michael Crichton like actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but he did, he did actually establish motivations and stuff. Some of the characters you see in this first two chapters, these events in these first two chapters sort of drive them. So maybe that's like table stakes or something for establishing why somebody would do something, but he, he did it. Like some authors mm -hmm. would just be like, well, they just did this because whatever. I don't care. Here's some cool sci-fi stuff. I would say it takes a while for it to like kind of come around to like really understand like why things are like why they show this uh, at the beginning or why you talked about this at the beginning. Um, it wasn't quite clear to me, like when I first read it, like, you know, why do I care? I want, I just want the science fiction, right? <laughs> like, like, why do I need like all this, you know, background about cultural revolution, all this stuff? Oh, I, I find that stuff interesting in it of itself. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I it's interesting, that. but yeah. it's like not what I was, but not what I signed up for. Right. Like, that's not like, yeah. like I, I didn't sign up for like a book about the his, the history of the cultural revolution, but it, it, I, I will say that it all makes, it, it does all come together. Like Jim is saying at the, at the, at the end. Uh, and I think like there is a common refrain of of Leosin being like not great at kind of uh, defining characters and giving characters depth. He, there's hits and misses I think along the along the series, but uh, yeah, Wenji especially like she she gets a lot of depth behind her, but you know, in yeah. the story. That's yeah. common amongst hard sci-fi. Michael Crichton accepted, you know, like. I would actually I, say that he's yeah yeah. There's that, and and he's he's sort of a systems writer. You know, he creates a system and it just kind of works it. I, I would say that he's he's not that his characters are not that much less deep than George R. R. Martin's characters. That's another dude that just says, I've created this world. I've created the system. I sort of have these mental rules. And then I just like he just kind of lets everything go. I'm not sure I agree with that. Like, I don't think anyone in, in this this series like comes out to the level of like Tyrion or, or Cersei or even like Jamie Lannister. Right? Like, I don't think anyone's, I guess, fully like some of the characters in like that series like the starks are kind of boring but they're supposed to be right but i think like the, there's a lot more character depth i think in, in the game of thrones series i don't know eh. okay i mean there is more so yeah this is where it's going to be hard to argue because i'm uh you can't quantify this yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sort of saying there's a little bit more depth in in characters in a story like that or like i know how i imagine like something like robert jordan or something like that where but not not that much, or so maybe maybe a better comparison, because yeah, I guess George R. R. Martin has created some characters that people are really attached to and excited about. Not me though. Well, it's a it's a way longer yeah. series, and you just spend a lot more time in those characters' heads, you know. So that's true. Uh, yeah, but like Tolkien, Tolkien is sort of like so. Tolkien is sort of like yeah. this, right? I mean, sure, his characters are beloved, but are they really that deep? Like, like somebody like Frodo is a guy. So I've been reading Lord of the Rings because with my, my son for like a year. But Frodo is just a guy that just kind of hangs on and just like tries to keep on going even though the ring is like tempting him to do stuff. There's not really that much to him. Like what's interesting about Lord of the Rings to me is these these are all characters in like a larger system. You know, they, they have a part to play in like a larger world. And I think that kind of, that kind of writing is valid, I think, but if if you compare the characters in the three body problem to Lord of the Rings, yeah, okay, there's maybe a little bit more depth to, or maybe something like Bilbo or something something like that. 
that that has some personality. But like something like Aragorn, right? He's he's just a brave dude who's brave all the time. And, uh, <laughs> does some ranging and uh, he could fight with two swords and uh, all that stuff. You know, <laughs> there's and he's noble and you know he doesn't do things wrong. <laughs> I think Lu Shin was actually saying in that New Yorker article. Uh, you know, I think it was the author of the New York article was saying like, well, you know, scientists do this and, you know, doctors do this and cops do this. And then he just has them kind of do them. And that's not that's not really worlds apart from writing we think of as not sci-fi that we don't, you know, lambast as having shallow characters. Yeah, but I mean, I think what there's a tiny difference. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're talking about is just a common with fantasy and sci-fi. They're usually not character studies. They're usually more concerned with world building and plot or, yeah. you know, in yeah. fantasy's case, it's world and it's mythologies and sci-fi with its ideas and all that. So it's not, you know, I mean, you could call it a weakness of the genre if it's what you're that's into what you and all want. that. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, that's, that's common. I mean, you can't. Character studies, deep character studies are usually set in real world settings or real world historical settings because you're more concerned with, you know, realism than you are. Yeah. With, and you uh, don't want to set up the world technology. and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, I've read, definitely read fantasy that is like a character study and all that. But, um, there's been some controversy that we kind of alluded to earlier about, um, you know, after the TV show was announced, people had a interview with uh, Leo Sishin about his opinions of how China is treating the Uyghur minority in China, which basically it's not confirmed, but it's pretty much known that, the China set up concentration camps and re-education camps uh, for the Muslim minority uh, there. And Liu Shichin says, yeah, they, they cause crime and, you know, China needs to crack down on them. Um, so there was a big reaction uh, back towards Netflix, who, who started the show or who picked up the show to maybe cancel it because, you know, if the if this doesn't jive with, you know, obviously reality <laughs> um, that you know, it's, it's okay to set up concentration camps. But Netflix pretty much just said, yeah, I mean, we don't agree with it, but we still like the story. What what did he did he actually say something like they cause crime or did he yeah, just say he did. Really? <laughs> oh god. That's worse than I thought cuz I, I I mean, I I also reread that when when you you talked about it, but okay, I I got the impression he said something like he has this idea, and I know he has this idea that in China you have to have total order and they are causing chaos or something like that. But uh, it could cause crime. <laughs> I have to reread this exact quote, but like that's a common sentiment in, in China as well. Like that the the, the Uyghurs come into the Muslim minorities come into cities in China and cause crime, um, and it, it's really just racist, right? <laughs> like that's what it is. Like it's pretty racist, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like we you know Americans do the same thing with with other minorities. Um, so China is no different in that regard, and you know Li Shin is. Yeah, Chinese nationalist, and you know, kind of agrees with that sentiment. Um, I also don't agree with it, obviously, uh, but yeah. I don't think the show should be canceled because you know it's like sort of outside the the realm of the show. But we're in a weird yeah, culture, woman, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's very tricky. Uh, like, um, it, it'd be interesting, you know, not not necessarily just to to judge what's right or wrong on on this issue, which is like really hard to figure out. But how much money does go to him? I have no idea. Like, basically, the only person in China that, uh, and again, I, I don't know that many uh, famous people of main, many famous people in China. The only one who uh, speaks up against uh, about speaks out against this stuff is like Ai Weiwei, the the, the artist, yeah. right? 
everybody else always seems to be, well, you know, uh, there's like a billion of us and there's just going to be total chaos if everyone just does whatever they want. So that's why I, I think in that New Yorker interview, like Lucy Shin told that, that reporter, if you were to become uh, the president of China tomorrow, right, you would do exactly the same thing. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I could definitely poke holes in that, but like, yeah, that's, that seems to be like a bigger, a bigger mystery, right? Of, of that point of view in general in China. How do you, how do you get that to jibe with, you know, his interest in science, his interest in like, you know, evidence-based um, decision-making? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me yeah. a little bit, you know, because obviously, you know, like if you, you know, from the first chapter of this, obviously his sympathies, you know, lie with, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher the, you know, Yi uh, Zetai or, you know, and, you know, it, you know, it seemed like he's obviously on the side of anti, you know, it seems like he's anti-authoritarian, at least, you know, from his, uh, you know, and obviously interested and in, doesn't think that things like, you know, certain scientific books or anything like that should be, you know, labeled reactionary or, you know, so, you know, you get the impression that he's kind of like anti-authoritarian in that sense, but I guess it doesn't preclude him, you know, not having prejudices. You know, it reminds me a little bit of like, say, like Christopher Hitchens, for example, if you know, you know, he was a, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, obviously anti, you know, very anti-dogmatic in a lot of his, you know, like, you know, and uh, anti-religious and, you know, and it was, you know, at least in all his early writings, you know, kind of like, you know, sort of anti-authoritarian and, uh, you know, anti-dogmatism and all that, but that ended up being, kind of coalescing into a pretty strong prejudice against Muslims, you know? So, you know, I think I kind of suspect it might be the same thing here or the same. It's like, you could only go so far. You can't, can't completely reconcile every contradiction in your head. <laughs> and at some point you're just like, Oh, let's just, just do, let's just do what, you know, she says, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, so yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Any yeah. final thoughts from anybody? There's something interesting about, other small things that are interesting about differences between, you know, American culture and Chinese culture, like the monsters and demons. Do you, do you remember that part where um, they had, I looked this up on Wikipedia, there are special lists of bad guys to memorize during, during um, the cultural revolution and the great leap forward. So, you know, you got credit basically for memorizing like this list of guys who are bad mm. <laughs> and, and that's, that's it. Yeah, that seems that seems very very Chinese, or, or just general generally um, East Asian. Like you know, here here we kind of issue memorization, especially you know in the last thirty years or so. It's just like uh, just look things up and spend your time on critical thinking. But I mean, there's something to memorizing things. You know, some, sometimes that actually is good for some things. But I thought that was interesting. Well, I'm, I'm, after the first two chapters, I'm definitely intrigued. Um, I read the dust cover. I know it's about aliens at some point. So I'm just kind of curious to <laughs> oh, see yeah. how, it, how it gets from, you know, this kind of s somewhat depressing historic, you know, like historical setting into uh, aliens and how that plays in. So. I, I didn't know that aliens were in, involved. So now. I'm oh, man. Well, I mean, it's in. You have been blown away. A, yeah. I mean, it's. it's I don't think it's a spoiler because it's in like, you know, if you read the dust cover for it, it's going to say aliens. So. I'm reading yeah. it digitally, so there is no dust cover, but I, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't care. I don't care. I, yeah, I guess it's OK. It would be interesting to see, read this as, uh, you know, how some people uh, lately are into watching movies without knowing what they're about. Like they'll, they'll oh. just say, 
I'm just going to go, well, I mean, pre, pre-pandemic, I'm just going to go into this movie theater and, and watch this movie based on the title. And it's supposed to be like when it actually connects, it's supposed to be like a, a pretty big, pretty amazing experience. Oh, the other thing I was wondering is, I, I don't know if anyone has any insight on this, but you know, you know the part where he says, um, uh, Ye Jitai says, uh, you know, when they're like piling it on him, he says uh, something like, uh, let the cross I bear be even he- heavier. Is that a Chinese expression? Hmm. Bearing crosses? It might have been it like an English, be, right? en- English translation, maybe. It's a Ken Liu thing, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that, that sure took they, me out of it I'm pretty slightly. sure they do know what Christianity is, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's but probably... enough to know that. Yeah. So the next chapter, right? Yeah, so for the next time, we'll read the next two chapters, um, which get into, well, I won't even get into what they get into, but it expands the story and introduces some some new characters after that. Oh, is that one cop in it, finally? That guy's the best. Uh, I don't know when he comes in, but yeah. No spoilers, Jim. (laughs) Right, there's cops. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) There's a cop, and he's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about him later. Like, I feel I should think he's awesome, but he is nice to read when he comes in. (laughs) All right. Well, that has been Rehydrate.